because today we commemorate and celebrate the most important event in human history, period. It is the most important event. It's a fulfillment of God's plan, our Creator's plan, to save and rescue mankind. And the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, described in the Bible as the greatest gift, it's described as the greatest expression of love. Because the Creator died for the created, the sinless one died for the sinner, the innocent one died for the guilty, and it was Almighty God who died for his enemies, according to Romans chapter 5. And it's not only great because of the greatest expression of love, but it's great because nothing is more valuable in a human experience than rescuing a soul, delivering a soul from eternal damnation in the lake of fire. Because our 80, 90 years here are short compared to eternity. And what we think about Jesus Christ is going to determine whether we spend eternity in the blessed rest and joy of our Savior, or whether we continue on in separation from Him into eternity. And just as well, there's nothing more precious than delivering a soul from the destruction of a godless culture. And as we look around us and the chaos that's going on in the world around us, we realize it's because this world has forsaken their Creator. And they're reaping the, reaping the results. Yet God, of his love for lost and fallen mankind, gave his only son to rescue us. God's plan was a rescue mission. It was an intervention. It was a reconciliation. It's a deliverance. It's a promise of an eternal future because we find forgiveness and cleansing and restoration in Christ. It's because he himself suffered. I like that phrase. You find it in various places in the scriptures. He himself. God emphasizing the point that the creator himself came down to bear your sins and mine on the cross. And so today we stand in humble awe and say thank you with worship and praise. Revelation 5.12, speaking of the future, says this, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And I trust that's what our hearts declare today. Now, as you consider Isaiah 53, we often think of it as a chapter that just has a few verses about uh, Christ bearing our sins. But really, what you find in this chapter is much of what was involved in the death and resurrection of Christ at that time. And so I'm going to read through this chapter at this time, and then we're going to go back and pull out some observations that relate to much of what Christ accomplished on the cross. Verse 1, Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living. For, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. 
Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, we sh he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. What's amazing about this chapter is that, is that it was written 700 years before Christ. It's a prophetic portion, isn't it? And some would doubt its authenticity. Others would doubt that it applies to Christ. Yet we see confirmed in the New Testament that this passage was a prophetic passage that related to the Lord Jesus. Remember the story of, of Stephen, with the, or excuse me, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch when he found the eunuch reading from Isaiah 53. Acts 8.35 says he jumped up in his chariot, joined him, and he preached him from that passage. He began to preach to him Jesus. We see Jesus quoting in John 12.38. We see Paul in Romans 10.16 in reference to the gospel. And so we find confirmation in the New Testament, which seems obvious to us anyway, when you read this passage that is a, a portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what you see first of all here is Jesus' humanity. And that's an important point. We see in the first couple of verses that he was growing up before him as a tender plant, a root out of dry ground. The term root in the scriptures, in the Old Testament especially, refers to the David's, excuse me, Jesus' uh, predecessors. That fact that he was a root of David. It, re it refers to his right to inherit the, the throne of David. He was a root. Isaiah 11.1 1 refers to the root of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what that tells us, to, tells us about is that he was a human. He had no form or communist. In other words, he wasn't overly attractive. He was a regular guy, but he was a human. That's the important part in this passage, that Jesus Christ became a man. And John, in John chapter 1, makes that point because in the end of John, he, makes, he says this in John 20, 31, that these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And it's important to, in the book of John that John confirms Jesus' humanity and divinity. Jesus was a man. And he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, it says in John chapter 1. Then it says this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood... He himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And so Hebrews tells us the necessity of the Son of God becoming the Son of Man, becoming a man so that he could qualify to be our Savior. He could identify with us. He could be our substitute. And that's amazing in itself, that Jesus laid aside the glory of heaven to step into human flesh, to take upon him a body for, your, for you and for I. Absolutely essential, isn't it? That it was Jesus, the perfect man, who died for the imperfect man, the sinner, on that cross. Another thing we see, especially in this chapter, is this chapter identifies indirectly man's need. The fact that man has a need of a, of a savior, of rescue, that man is a sinner. And we must remember when we consider sharing the good news of salvation, that that's the primary need the Bible addresses is the fact that man is separated from God because of his sin. Notice in verse 5, it refers to our transgressions. And transgression is defined as disobedience and rebellion. 
In fact, in some places, in some versions, the word is translated rebels. That's what it means to be a transgressor. It means to be a rebel against God and his truth. We're violators in need of forgiveness. And that's an important part. We see this word throughout Scripture, the idea that we have violated the law of God. Whether it's the Ten Commandments or other commands, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're transgressors. We have disregarded the will and word of God. We need forgiveness. Another thing you see here is, is the reference to our iniquities in verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The word iniquities means to be morally bad or morally corrupt. And therefore, man's in need of cleansing before God. Man has participated in things that are morally contrary to God's holiness. And in order to enter the presence of God in a right relationship with God, we need cleansing through the blood of Jesus. In verse 6, we're described as having gone astray. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've gone astray. We've wandered away from, departed from our Creator. We've abandoned the fathering of our God. And when you go, when a sheep goes astray, not only does it leave the protection of the shepherd, it pursues often things that are bad for it, doesn't it? And we've, to, we, and we've pursued the wrong. The world around us is a in a pursuit of things that are self-destructive in life. And therefore, we need to be reconciled, reunited, restored to relationship with our God so that we can come under the fathering protection and direction of our Creator. You see, these, these phrases describe man's need, why Jesus had to come, why Jesus had to die, because man, had, man was lost to God. And because of sin, we are facing eternal death. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul that sins, it shall die. Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death. And that's a serious thing. You know, this might be a review for many of us, but we need to re realize that when we walk out the door and we go about our week this week, we're going to be surrounded with people that fit this category, that have not yet found for forgiveness for their transgressions, cleansing from their iniquities, and a reuniting with their Father through Christ. And because of that, they're not only facing eternal death in the lake of fire when life comes to an abrupt end, but also they're facing destruction in life. The Bible repeatedly reminds us that, that if we sow to the flesh, we'll reap corruption. Neither the flesh cannot please God. And, it's, and the Bible lists throughout its pages the, the fruits of the flesh in all their destructive behavior. In Romans chapter 1, it describes the decline of mankind when they, when, they, when they ceased glorifying him as God. That means they went astray. That it ends up in moral decadence. And just look around us. We see the fruits of a departure from God, of going astray from God, of being a sinner in rebellion against God. There's no single solid foundation for the world to stand on, the way it thinks and acts. And so the secular worldview is really has mankind at its center. In fact, a bunch of individual me's at its center. And therefore, what seems good to me isn't always necessarily good for you, but too bad. Because if I'm in power, this is the way it's going to be. There's no foundation, there's no unifying principle. In the world today, even though God has put a consciousness of himself in our hearts, people have strayed from that and wandered from that, and their conscience are dull, is dulled. So we look around us. We see conflict, do we, do we not? But we especially see a war on values and morals that really is leaving people 
confused and disillusioned. And maybe you've met those people. Maybe you know some people that are just completely lost, without direction in life. They're in despair. Everywhere you turn, you find broken people. Sometimes because of broken homes, sometimes because of abuse, neglect. People are being violated, resented. I recently heard a quote of a Jewish scientist or historian on the radio that, who says that there is no cosmic reason for man to exist. What he means by that, there is no God in heaven that has a purpose for you and I or a future to look forward to. There's no cosmic reason. In layman terms, it simply means we're just a piece of meat that has no value other, other than what we can find for ourselves while we're here. So you might as well live it up and, and, and have, the, have a blast because there's no reason. Otherwise, that's evolutionary thinking at its worst. It leaves us without hope other than seeking one cheap thrill after another. People are broken. People are disillusioned. And they're searching for meaning, love, and acceptance. Things that are only found in Christ, identity, and stability. They're sometimes told to find it in some type of self-affirmation in a skill or a talent they have. But when that, when that fails, then they fall into despair. And when troubles come and, and the heat gets turned up in their trials of their lives, they become overwhelmed and not knowing where to, where to turn. And it seems lately, you turn on the TV for any short amount of time, you see some reference to the increased rate of suicide in life. And you see these messages. If you know anybody who is going this way, call this hotline. Despair. That's the world today. And it's because we've gone astray from our Creator. And that's why Jesus is the answer, isn't it? That's what we celebrate today. Because in Him we find salvation, we find cleansing, and we find identity, we find purpose. We have a future to look forward to, a shoulder to cry on, arms to uphold us, and a rock to stand on. All found in Christ, all what the world's abandoned. And that's why we have the answer. Both for salvation from eternal damnation, because we are all the children of God through faith in Jesus Christ, as many as received him, and then gave you the power, the authority to become the sons of God, even to those who believed on his name. But we also find deliverance and rescue from the tragedy, tragedies of life. We find strength, purpose, and meaning in Christ. Isaiah 61.1 says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Another prophetic passage in regards to the Lord Jesus because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Man has a great need. Well, we find that need met in Jesus Christ. And it's that event that's described here in this chapter, by and large. Much of the subject of this chapter is in regards to Jesus' suffering. The first thing we see here in verse 3 is that he's oppressed by men. He's despised and rejected. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. We hid our faces from him. He's despised. We do not esteem him. You know, what a tragic, ex tragic description of mankind's reception of Jesus Christ. When the Creator steps into the, steps into the world, John 1 tells us he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Last week we made reference to the triumphal entry, which I call the not-so-triumphal entry because they did not receive him. One commentator calls it the triumphal exit because he was really exiting this life and entering into eternity. They rejected him. Verse 7 
tells us that he was oppressed and he was afflicted. And we think about the, the affliction that man doled out on Jesus Christ at the cross. Men scourging their creator. Matthew 27, 8. Verse 29 of that chapter says they put a crown of thorns on him. Throughout the chapter we find they mocked him. Well, I can't help but wonder what it was like for those people to stand before their creator. Ones who beat him with rods, maybe had sport with him, playing games while they blindfolded him. But then sometimes we need to look at the mirror and say, have we really given honor and worship in our lives to our God? We find here in verse 7 that he was led to his death as a sheep before its shearer. Or excuse me, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. That's how they treated him. Verse 8 says he was wrongly imprisoned and judged. We know he was, his trial and execution were illegal. He was falsely accused and he was cut off from the land of the living in verse 8. They took his life. Well, we know he gave his life. He gave up the ghost. But as far as mankind's concerned, that was the abuse they placed upon our Savior. Someone pointed out that you find in the gospel accounts of the crucifixion and trial and crucifixion of Christ, not a lot of graphic details. And that's maybe a good thing. God withheld maybe us from seeing the picture of what mankind did to the Lord Jesus Christ upon that cross. Verse 12 tells us he was crucified as a criminal. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was crucified as a criminal. The very Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Well, in this chapter, we find not only man's oppression and affliction of Jesus Christ, but we find that he was also smitten by his Father. The culmination of the cross, you might say. Verse 4, notice it says, He was smitten by God and afflicted. That's just an astounding concept. That the creator God would smite his own son on the cross. Undeserving, the perfect sinless lamb of God, the one who had, who had completed the father's will, he was smitten by God. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We've seen him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. You see, on that cross, God laid your sins and mine on the back of Jesus Christ. That was above and beyond what humans could do to him and their rejection of him. And on top of that, God placed our sins upon him. Verse 5 says, he was then wounded. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was, uh, the chastisement of the Father was on him. You see, we need to re remember that sin requires a penalty. And God said, the soul that sins, it shall die. And that chastisement of the wrath of God was placed on him instead of you and I. You know, when you think of these descriptions of what the Father did to his only son on that cross as our substitute, we can rejoice that you and I will never experience those things. We may experience some discipline in life when we disobey our Heavenly Father. We may experience the reaping of what we've sown in life, but we're never going to experience the wrath or chastisement of God. That's tragic, but it's exciting. 
We rejoice in that. That's the great love of our Savior. Verse 5 says he was, he was wounded and bruised and chased and chastised. Verse 6 tells us the Lord laid on him the iniquity, that moral badness of us all. Verse 8 reminds us that as for the transgression of my people, he was stricken by his father. Verse 10 says it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now don't take that word wrong. It doesn't mean that God got his jollies out of abusing his son. It simply meant it was his will. It was his purpose. We'll never understand that depth of love. That's why we celebrate today this greatest event in human history, such a such an expression of the love of God, and we sometimes sing the song, How Deep the Love. Verse 10 goes on to say, He has put him to grief. He made his soul an offering for sin. Verse 11 reminds us in the end of the verse that he'll bear our iniquities. Verse 12 that he poured out his soul, he himself really poured out his soul to death and bore our sins. You know, the emphasis here put on the work of God, the Father, in placing our sins in the back of Jesus Christ, <coughs> excuse me, our substitute on the cross, to remind us and, and impress upon our thinking the issue in a person's salvation is the need for forgiveness from transgressions, of cleansing from sin, and of restoration to God. That is the issue in salvation, and that's what we find in Christ. People don't realize that they need forgiveness from their Father. They need to be cleansed from their sin. They need to be reunited because they've gone astray. That's the issue that Jesus bore on the cross when he took that penalty so that God could be free to forgive, and God could be free to cleanse. And God can be free to restore because we've been cleansed in the blood of the Lamb. And this all happened because in this chapter we find Jesus went there willingly. We know in the Gospels that he prayed, if this cup could pass from me, he sweat as it were great drops of blood. But nevertheless, thy will be done. Verse 7 reminds us that he was like a silent lamb. He didn't open up his mouth. He didn't protest. But he could have called legions of angels, we know. 1 Peter 2.23 says he did not revile in return when he was reviled. And that's our normal human reaction, you know, to, to, uh, to self-defense, self-preservation. And in the case of Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, he had the right to not go there. We're told in John chapter 10, the Lord Jesus says, I laid down my life for the sheep. And then later in the chapter, he says, I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it again. I'm not forced to do this. I'm doing it willingly. That's the beauty of verse 7. And that's why verse 12 describes at the end of our text here today, he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgression. He bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. He went there willingly. Isn't that amazing? And that's for you and I. Sometimes we talk about this in a generic term, you know, as in, the, in the case of the concept of the whole world, but it's me. It's you. In fact, when we take the Lord's table later today, the purpose of that is to help us to identify with these verses. Help us to say, this is me. I qualify. It's my sin that put him there. It's me he died for. And the, the Bible describes that if you and I were the only person on the face of the earth, he still would have done that for you. I mentioned this many times, but I love the concept when someone pointed out 
In John 3.16, how big is so? God so loved. And that's what we celebrate today when we remember the death and resurrection of Christ is the depth of his love. 1 John 3.16 tells us that's how we know the love of God because he laid down his life for us. And I like the verse in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What's that joy? It was you and me. That was the joy. And we look at this as, you know, as I, I think I mentioned this the other day, that Good Friday wasn't so good for the Lord Jesus Christ. Other than the sense he was accomplishing his Father's will. But we've seen some of the description here of the, of the agony and suffering he endured. And we can't even begin to imagine. We can't even begin to imagine those three hours on the cross when he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As God the Father and Spirit turned their back on Jesus Christ and he found out what it's like to be forsaken by God. And it's that kind of forsakenness that those who reject Christ are going to experience unless they trust him by faith. We'll never know the depths of that suffering that went on between the Father and the Son, but we do know this. It is finished. It's paid in full. It was accomplished. He laid down his life for us. Because we also see not only his willingness to go here, but we also see what he accomplished in this verse. And as we pick these, these concepts out of this poetic passage, we find that the chastisement for our peace was upon him. First of all, we find peace. What the world longs for, isn't it? Where there's peace in this world. Peace in our hearts. Or in reality, peace with God. Because as much as we love to see a ceasefire in Ukraine, much as we like to see nations stop persecuting Christians, much as we like to see people quit abusing other mankind and the various abuses that are exercised upon each other, what we really long for is peace between us and our Father. That's what's troubling the human heart. That's why the world can never find peace. No matter what activity, what position, how much money it achieves, peace is found in one place, and it's the Prince of Peace. Romans 5.1 says, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And once you come to that place where you put your faith in Jesus Christ and experience the peace of forgiveness and the joy of cleansing, the hope of eternal future, we can then begin to enjoy in life the peace he gives, as he described in John 13 and 14. The peace that he has left us, his peace. The peace of knowing we have a God who is for us, who who undergirds us, who walks with us, who cares for us, and so on. It also says here in verse, verse 5, it's by his stripes we're healed. The word healing means to return to normal. In Isaiah 61.1, Jesus said, I mentioned that verse earlier, I came to heal the brokenhearted. See, God is wanting to restore things to normal. And he heals our relationship with God, and we trust him by faith, and someday... Our physical bodies will be completely restored to their perfection at the rapture, won't it? At our resurrection. Verse 10 says something interesting. This is a highlight. It says in the middle of the verse, He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
Now those, that, those, that indicates life. This is a resurrection. The resurrection of Christ is found in this chapter. He's going to prolong his days. The one who dies in this chapter, the one who was led as a lamb to the slaughter, is the one who lives. That's the resurrection of this chapter. It is referring to the fact that the grave's not going to hold him. He's going to prolong his days. And there's victory in this verse, victory that arises out of the suffering of Christ. And he's going to then accomplish the pleasure of the Lord it's going to prosper in his hand. That tells us God is going to fulfill his program of restoring the world to himself through the resurrected Christ. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, where we see this laid out a little more clearly. 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. If you would, I'd like to follow along. But now Christ is risen from the dead, hallelujah, and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's the first one to enter God's presence in, in glory. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. That means the, the one man, Adam, through Adam came death. But through this man, Jesus Christ, came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts to end to all rule and authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But he, when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who puts all things under him, that's referring to his Father, is accepted. Now when all things are subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, the Father, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. This describes the fact that God's not through with Jesus Christ. He's going, to, he's going to prosper his program in his hand. And there's a time coming when Jesus is going to reign. And Revelation describes that time when Jesus puts down all rule and authority and power, and he takes the reins of this earth for a thousand years, and then eventually delivers that kingdom up to God and the Father. See, God's in the business of restoring what was fallen and lost in the garden. And what's amazing about this is that this has been God's plan from eternity. Re Revelation 13.8 says this, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of, life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Slain from the foundation of the world. That means God planned this from the beginning of the world as, a, as his plan to restore what was lost at the garden. This creation is going to be restored. God's, God's people are going to be restored. And we'll go into eternity right with God. Wonderful, wonderful, isn't it? That's why even in our study of Abraham, we're in, a, in the covenant to Abraham, God promised that in, through Abraham, seed, the world would be blessed. And in Galatians here, you find that blessing is the cross of Christ and his resurrection. God is carrying out his plan. And Christ will return to earth to restore righteousness to this earth and his chosen people. We're seeing that in our Wednesday night study, in our study of Zechariah. What a glorious restoration that will be. You see, these verses talk about the fact that Jesus is alive. If you go back to Isaiah 53, he is going to continue to prosper in his days. Verse 11 then tells us 
that he's going to be satisfied with his labor. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Satisfied. The word satisfied reminds us of a, of a you know, 25 cent word in the New Testament called propitiation, which is defined as satisfaction. In other words, Jesus' work on the cross is going to satisfy the Father. He's going to satisfy God's demand for a penalty upon sin. He's going to be satisfied. And when Jesus ascended into he heaven and sat at the Father's right home was an indication that God was satisfied and the work was finished. And he goes on to say, by his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. And that's what we need. We need justification, don't we? That's one of the salvation terms we see in the scriptures. I mentioned Romans 5, 1, having therefore been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. First Romans 4, 24 and 25 says, But also for us it shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Jesus' victory is, is from, the, from the grave is attributed to the basis of our justification. And to be justified before God means to be declared right. That means our transgressions are forgiven, our iniquities are cleansed, and our relationship is restored, justified, is accomplished through Jesus Christ. And so you can see in this chapter, this is more than just a couple references to Jesus bearing our sins. We find much of the essence of God's plan for salvation encapsulated in this prophetic passage 700 years before the cross. And really, what we find here is the answers for life and for eternity. In him we find forgiveness if we would believe on him. 1 John 5.13 says this, that if we believe on the name of the Son of God that we can know we have eternal life. Why can we know? Because the work has been completed. Sins have been paid for. And not only do we find forgiveness from sins when we trust Christ, but we find victory and stability in life. John 16.33 says this, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And 1 John 5, 4 says we can overcome the world by faith. As we trust him who has overcome, you and I can overcome. We can find victory and stability and meaning and purpose and direction in life. And that's the, what the world needs most, isn't it? It needs reconciliation with God. It needs to have a firm foundation. It needs to have the power of the Spirit of God at work in our lives to overcome. And so this chapter becomes a beautiful chapter of a gift of love. This is the pinnacle, the mountaintop of a description of the love of God. How much he loved you and I individually and what he did for us on the cross having died and rose again. And I think there's a couple of things that we should consider in that. Colossians 1.18 says this, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's risen from the dead, that all things he might have the preeminence. And I think God intends for that to be true in our lives, does, does, does it not? Does he have the preeminence? Do we are, are we so gratified for his love, for his gift? That's what this celebration is about, to, to rally us around our Savior together as a family, that we might 
allow him to have the preeminence in our lives. And then I couldn't help but think of Philippians 3.10, where after the Apostle Paul gives his testimony of what Christ did for him, he says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That I may know him. When we're loved like this, such an unconditional, infinite love, amazing love, it should encourage us to seek to know more, to know him, and then experience his power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable to his death. And as we consider the Lord's table this morning, it's an identification with what we've read today, what we studied today. It's a, it's a statement that proclaims the Lord's death till he comes, but what it proclaims is that he died for me. When I take that element, it was my sins that broke his back. When I partake of the, the juice, it is my sins for, for which he gave his life. It's me. And so it's a time for, though we celebrate this together as a family, it's a time for you and I each to individually focus on the great love of our Savior. And what an appropriate time to have the Lord's table on the day we celebrate. Good Friday and the resurrection of Christ. I'm going to be turning to 1 Corinthians 11 as we continue on here in our celebration of the Lord's table. And here we are told to proclaim this, to show his, the Lord's death till he comes and to do so in a worthy manner. We recognize in the Old Testament that when the priests would offer sacrifices in the various days and methods and means and types of sacrifices. They did so according to a precise manner, but they did so in, in, uh, in cleanliness and in purity and holiness. And that's how God wants us to approach the Lord's table. And it's not that anything mystical or magical transforms between the elements and the person, but it is all symbolic of a great love that Jesus had for us in paying for our sins. So he tells us to eat this bread in a worthy manner, with hearts that are right before our God, in awe and respect, that God may impress upon us his great love for us. And so we're going to take a moment for silent prayer before we partake of the elements to allow us to focus on our Savior to be sure our hearts are right and that we might continue according to the word in a, in a manner that honors and uplifts our Savior. So let's pray.